0: This is Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast for writers and readers, by writers and readers. Hello, and welcome to Dissecting Dragons. I'm Madeleine Vaughan.
1: And I'm Jules Ironside. This week, he's a man-eater, the global invasion of ogres in myth and fiction.
0: Now, um, this is going to be a two-parter. Uh... (laughs) (laughs) My thing got a little carried away. <laughs> um, I did. I got a tiny bit carried away. Um, so the the kind of, the reason we're doing this episode is that both Jules and I recently listened to the audio um, book of uh, uh, Ogre Enchanted by Gail Carson Levine. And uh, obviously that, that features ogres in it, as is in the name and uh, I started I I kind of noted a few things a few similarities and went oh that's interesting because that's kind of like this and that reminds me of that, and so I started to kind of just, just for fun, doing a tiny bit of sort of research. And then I was like, "Hey, Jules, I think there might be an episode in this." And Jules was like, "Great, okay, you go ahead and put it together." And I was like, "Fantastic!" And as I was putting it together, I was suddenly finding more and more and more, <laughs> and then at like three o'clock in the morning, I sent Jules like, "Um, so this is going to be a two-parter because there's just a lot, and I've gone down a massive rabbit hole." So I apologise in advance, but it really is fascinating. At least I find it fascinating. So hopefully,
1: I found the message from Madeline at seven o'clock this morning. I (laughs) literally just woken up and I was like, oh my god, she's gone full dark academia. You know, I could just see her. You know, spectacles hanging askew, abandoned (laughs) cups of tea, and papers everywhere.
0: (laughs) Honestly, like that is pretty much what I looked like. (laughs) um like literally that that's exactly what the image was I worked all through the night because I just fell down this rabbit hole and I just couldn't stop um so with that in mind um (laughs) we're going to get started so part one we're going to be looking at basically ogre ancestors and the origins of the ogre figure um So uh, we'll start off with the etymology of the word ogre, um, which is uh, immediately already a complicated matter because it's very debated. Um, There is a a French, the French writer, uh, Jay Huat said in his article um, in the the magazine um, Romania. Le mot ogre est intéressant pour les folkloristes, pour les etymologistes, il est embarrassant meaning the word ogre is interesting for folklorists, but for etymologists, it's embarrassing. Um, That being said, it is largely believed to be, um, the word ogre to be a French word, um, but that it derived from the god, Orcus.
1: Yes, Um, now Orcus was a Roman god of the underworld. In some cases, he is his own distinct figure from the god Pluto. But other sources interpret him as a particularly vicious aspect or even the avatar of Pluto. Um, Orcus appears to have reveled in torturing sinful souls in the afterlife and in eating human flesh. So, I mean, obviously, Pluto kind of is uh, congruent with Hades, but generally the Roman gods were nastier and more spiteful
0: yeah <laughs> um with that in mind, obviously a small caveat about the roman gods uh the romans adopted and absorbed a lot of the gods of other cultures as the empire expanded we've touched on this in the past obviously um the greek pantheon um ha- did largely inform the later depiction of the roman gods um, and even sort of replaced a few entirely um i'm pretty sure for example that apollo um is just a greek god because well yeah. at the least he doesn't get given a roman name he's just
1: <laughs> Apollo, oh, the, the mighty apollo yeah, yeah i mean it's weird i think the romans kind of did everything except hold a huge meeting where everyone sat down and went yeah we admire greece we like greece we're going to conquer greece and then we're going <laughs> to yeah. basically adopt all the greek norms and values <laughs> yeah <laughs> um So uh,
0: with this in mind, it's possible that the character of Orcus uh, either predates, was a precursor of, or informed the depiction of Hades and Pluto that we are familiar with now. Um, As a deity unto himself, he does appear to have originated in the um, Etruscan area of the Mediterranean, um, which, for those who don't know, incorporates the west coast and uh, the sort of the north of Italy um, and also the island of Corsica, which is where yours truly is from. Uh, while the roman expansion meant that orcus was largely assimilated and thus underrepresented in the city so he didn't have any kind of worshippers or temples in the cities he did maintain worshippers in rural areas down the coast for a very long time Um, and it's also worth mentioning that orcus as with hades shares his name with the underworld so the god was orcus but also the underworld was orcus
1: yeah Um, Orcus appears in Edmund Spencer's Elizabethan The Fairy Queen. Um, Add extra ease to that one, guys, but (laughs) (laughs) but potentially it has a longer history in England through uh, the Anglo Saxon term orc or orcae, which is understood to mean monster or spirit and was later translated to ogre. Um, the problem with translating Anglo-Saxon, of course, is that they had quite a limited vocabulary, and yeah. a word could change its nuance, its meaning, or even its emphasis based on where you put it in the sentence. So yeah. it's this lovely economical language, but yeah. when you're translating it, it's an absolute pain in the ass because there's, no, there's very few corresponding words. So a lot yeah. of what we know from translating it is based entirely on sort of like well we've still got that word and it still means hill ergo this is probably a hill kind of thing
0: yeah whereas it was where is it in the sentence and what's the sort of the context surrounding it what are the other words that are used with it which would inform how it's meant to be understood um so yeah like it it is sort of later dictionaries kind of just sort of translated it as orc um but again um that's a simplification um Now, uh, some scholars have suggested that the word orc actually originated from a Dutch word nork, meaning an evil person or a a nasty person. Um, But quite a few have instead said, no, it does connect back to this god, Orcus. Orc
1: also forms part of the compound word Orcneus from the epic Beowulf which was dubiously translated as evil spirits, but has since been theorised to actually mean corpse from the underworld or demon corpse. Again, this really depends on whose translation you're reading. And you know, yeah. if you ever feel like doing a translation of Beowulf on your own, if you fancy a little <laughs> project, guys, I've done this. This is good fun. But I, I guarantee you're going to get a different interpretation. <laughs> yes, seriously.
0: <laughs> um, now... Uh, J.R. Tolkien, we obviously think of him in terms of being, oh, uh, this uh, this author of, of Lord of the Rings, but he was also obviously an academic um, who specialised in these things. Uh, and he was actually rather dubious of the idea that the Anglo-Saxon Orc came directly from Orcus. Um, he didn't, outright rule it out but he he did theorize that both words might have had an older common origin um, from much earlier indo-european mythology um and there might just be some merit in that as we are about to explore
1: yeah certainly when it comes to things like linguistics i would nearly except when he's talking about the irish branch of the celtic languages because he could not do irish i would actually agree with tolkien nine times Mm. out of ten just because he was that good he was that brilliant a linguist his real genius lay in linguistics so yeah yeah, everyone's like oh lord of the rings and he invented all these languages and it's like yeah do you know how he invented those languages he (laughs) could speak so many of them
0: yeah because he was a nerd um okay so (laughs) we
1: like nerds on this podcast
0: we do we do like nerds on this podcast so we're now going to jump uh to the figure of Enkidu and the wild men, um, the sort of what I would call the early European um, ogres. So this is a, a small caveat. I promise you it will become relevant. Now um, in our spooky season special, uh, we mentioned the wood woes, um, in our cryptids, uh, which are a type of uh, hairy wild man um, who are found uh, in the wilderness of Europe um, in other, Other times they are called leshi or salvang as well, Um, and they they really are kind of found um, everywhere. Now, um, it's speculated that aspects of the wild man figure um, might have been drawn from the uh, figure of Enkidu, who was a prominent uh, person in the ancient Mesopotamian, (coughs) sorry, in the ancient Mesopotamian epic, of Gilgamesh. Yes, Yes. we're talking about Gilgamesh.
1: (laughs) We should actually do one on Gilgamesh. We should. um, Yeah, anyway, Enkidu, in my head, I've just reversed the K and the D round, so it was Ndiku in my head, so my brain occasionally does weird shit with birds. No, that's Um, fine. Okay, but Enkidu is half man and half beast, often depicted with horns, ears, and the lower half of a bull. Uh, which must have been quite a sight. <laughs> yeah. It's almost a bit
0: Minotaur-esque, isn't it? But like if... the other way around. It's like they were brothers and one got the upper half
1: and the other got the lower half. Brothers from another mother. <laughs> yep. was <laughs> um, the personification of nature. a bit like Pan. Often thwarting human hunters and living amongst a herd of gazelle. He was tremendously strong, big and described as very hairy. It is possible that he informed myths and ideas of Pan, fauns, and satyrs, who in turn have helped to shape the folklore of the wild man. And obviously we linked the wild man with Bigfoot, basically. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Um, Remember, when we talk about these things being linked and sort of informing things, um, it would be foolish to think that there's this sort of direct and very clear sort of line from A to B, uh, because that's just not how it works. Um, But, you know, even if it didn't originally inform early ideas, Um, just as with sort of the Roman gods kind of developing and adapting as they came into contact with sort of similar figures, um, we might very well see that happening too.
1: Yeah, I mean, you've only got to look at the early medieval paintings of things like lions and tigers. (laughs) Yeah. And it's it's just a case of... (laughs) there's all sorts of funny memes about yeah and i would like you to paint it like this and the artist is kind of sweating buckets and it's like you you can paint that right oh yeah yeah totally (laughs) what comes out is not what you would think of us a lion or a tiger yep (laughs) but it it is basically somebody described something someone else thought well that sounds a bit like this it must look a little bit like this yeah it's actually quite difficult to give someone with no frame of reference or context for, for an animal or a person or an object Um, and make them actually draw it because it's
0: just like what exactly and actually if you look at a lot of sort of like japanese and sometimes some chinese art and things like that which have like tigers and things you'll notice the tigers look a bit weird and that's because their only point of reference were like skinned tigers so they'd be given like the skins of tigers um and they also then at the time they'd see the skins of leopards and they thought that they were the same creature and that every third uh third sorry not lions tigers every third tiger was a leopard essentially (laughs) (laughs) so there you go you can understand how these things sort of and and these are actual living creatures so you can understand how mythos and things like that um sort of ended up being translated So um, in the epic of Gilgamesh, um, Enkidu, spoilers, um, is killed by the gods as recompense for a slight he and Gilgamesh have committed. Um, If we do an episode, you'll learn about Gilgamesh, you'll learn all about that. Um, It means that Enkidu ends up wasting away over several weeks from an illness, um, rather than being able to kind of die in battle, which is sort of what he would have preferred um his impending end however is signaled in quite an interesting way in that just before he dies he has a dream where he is dragged into a dark and very miserable underworld by a monster with a lion's head and eagle's wings um and i believe that also Enkidu was given feathers as well it's it's um it's very confusing
1: <laughs> yeah there's a reason that gilgamesh is the original epic you know yeah. capital e <laughs> Um, aspects of the Enkidu can be identified in the Austrian and Italian Orco and Orke, a type of wild man creature whose names are derived from the god Orcus. The Orke are wild, fay like creatures that live in the mountains and valleys. They are described as a type of dwarf, inverted commas, obviously dwarf, as in the mythical creature. Mm-hmm. Um, but this may well be understood in the traditional sense of living underground rather than necessarily an indication of size. Um, as with Enkidu, they are described as having a Uh, bovine hooves and tails and will often thwart hunters by warning off their prey. They're often tricksters who cause trouble for humans and occasionally curse or blight cattle very similar to the elves or alfin of the old English or Anglo-Saxon folklore. Okay,
0: so (laughs) and this is the part where Madeline starts to go down a rabbit hole. (laughs) Follow the white rabbit, guys. Follow the white rabbit. Okay, um, because we are going to jump from uh, sort of kind of sort of some of the european and, and and the mesopotamian sort of influences and we're going to go to asia so uh while the god orcus uh, mixed with the concepts of the wild men could explain early ogres um, or ogre figures in europe tolkien's assertion that they all came from an older indo-european figure can potentially explain the startling similarities of the European ogre with the Japanese Oni, who has a very interesting history. So, let's get into it. (laughs) So the word Oni comes from the Chinese character Gui, meaning ghost, which in turn appears to have originated from the character Yin, meaning hidden or to conceal. Now, early oni, therefore, were likely to have been spirits or ghosts, um, but they may very well have taken on fiercer properties as Buddhism was adopted into Japan.
1: Yeah. <laughs> there's a lot of there's a lot there. already yes. Yeah, um, there is. Um, Buddhism introduced the concepts of the yaksha and rakshas. Yakshasa to um, Japan. Uh, The Yaksha may well date back as early as the 3rd century BCE with large stone statues of Yaksha surviving from 150 BCE. Once lightly worshipped as local nature gods they later became spirits and servants of other gods in Hinduism, Jainism and Buddhism. While largely benevolent if occasionally a little mischievous some Yaksha were twisted and evil and enjoyed eating people. There it is yeah there it is <laughs> <laughs> i knew you were going this way uh, these yaksha appear frequently in buddhist literature and mythos where sinful humans are reincarnated into yaksha as punishment a concept similar to the elements of the chinese buddhist classic journey to the west where sandy and pixie are transformed into demons by heaven and cast to the earth where they begin to eat people It has been suggested this interpretation of Yaksha was in turn influenced by the Indian Prita or hungry ghosts. Buddhism is obviously fascinating, but it's not all about peace and love, (laughs) as anybody who studied it will
0: know. Not at all. Um, And of course, um, Buddhism um, was also influenced by hinduism and things like that so we do start to see these kind of uh, we see these shared figures and the Preto, the hungry ghosts i didn't want to get into all of that because that's a whole other thing trust me there were there were other things and i decided to omit them because i thought yes i can link them in but really it's it's starting to get a little bit too deep guys yeah. um but and all i
1: said was hey do you mind putting a few notes together i didn't say hey can i have a phd thesis <laughs> <laughs>
0: Okay, um, so uh, that was the Aksha, but the Rakshasa of Buddhist mythos are even more dangerous. So um, in the kind of uh, in sort of the Hindu mythos, um, they were created by the God Brahma out of a composition of foulness and darkness. Um, and they were born basically aching with perpetual hunger, just like starving, and a craving again, here it is, for human flesh. <laughs> so as well as having animalistic features and behaviours, um, they were also able to cast illusions, they could fly, and they could shapeshift. And while they weren't always malevolent, um, there are epics where they actually sort of fight alongside the heroes, they are almost always ferocious warriors. Um, particularly fierce Rakshasa are sometimes depicted with flaming red hair and eyes, and they were known to carry skulls around because uh, they would drink the blood of their enemies from them, From it. <laughs> yeah, um, now again, uh, this is, Rather reminiscent of the figure of Sandy from Journey to the West, who is also described as having bright red hair and who wears a string of skulls around his neck. So, um, the Japanese oni adopted many of the qualities of these two beings, and they kind of took their place in the collective mythos. Of, if you know anything about sort of Japanese sort of uh, sort of mythology, what they did is they kind of incorporated buddhism and it sort of all got tied in together so it wasn't just okay well we're now this or we're now that it's no no it's now like this whole collection
1: (laughs) yeah all all the buddhism ideas particularly sort of like the the world of hungry ghosts or the world of angry ghosts and um, shinto all sort of blended together
0: exactly yeah um, so the uh, <laughs> they did sort of take their place um, and um, the uh, this is interesting because the oni of the Japanese underworld really started to resemble the Buddhist um, yak- uh, the Buddhist yaksha in that they were damned souls who were transformed and forced to serve the gods of hell Essentially, in repentance. They could also be forced to be kind of like guardians, um, magistrates, etc. But it was essentially that they had been cursed, they were damned, and that's why they became Oni um, when they reincarnated. Meanwhile, there were also Oni on the surface world, basically in the human world, and these ones resembled the Rakshasa a lot more. Um, and it was basically um, these Oni. Um, were the ones who featured predominantly in Japanese folklore and myths. So when you hear about sort of the stories of, of Oni kind of eating people or attacking things, um, they are very reminiscent of the Rakshasa.
1: Yes. So violent and with a taste for human flesh. Again, there it is. <laughs> These oni were actually humans who were so terrible they transformed before even dying. So this is actually quite a common idea across okay. various different... Um, you know, mm-hmm. pantheons of myth and what have you. You've got, obviously, the versions of Romanian werewolves and things, which is literally, this is what happens. Mm. Um, like the Rakshasa, Enkidu and the Woodwows, the only were large with animal-like properties, including horns, fangs, claws and wild hair, and came in various colours, with red and blue being particularly popular. They were so tied with the environment, they often had powers related to it, including being able to conjure lightning and thunder, as well as causing earthquakes, disasters, plagues, and war. They were largely considered harbingers of doom.
0: Interestingly, Oni are also depicted wearing tiger pelts, and they were frequently shown carrying staffs or clubs, which is, again, highly reminiscent of Monkey from the Chinese Buddhist epic Journey to the West, who literally his main weapon is that he carries a staff and he wears a tiger belt (laughs) now it's been suggested that the pelt and horns are actually references to the ox and the tiger of the um of the sort of lunar zodiac um and the the zodiac was also used to mark the cardinal directions Interestingly, the ox and the tiger represented a north-easterly direction, um, which in Japan was dubbed uh, Kimon, meaning literally translating to Demon Gate. Um, and this direction was considered very unlucky because it was the direction from which ogres, ghosts, wicked spirits and evil entities would arrive from and go. So, like, if you looked in that direction, you'd basically see demons coming, <laughs> going. <laughs>
1: so it's like uh everywhere else north is fine south is fine northeastly no don't no, no absolutely
0: don't not hand. in fact if you go to japan today you will actually notice that um a lot of buildings and stuff like that even now um will not have any windows or doors or anything like that in um off on the northeastern side um, yeah. and they might even have tiny little symbols or things like that which are supposed to repel the um uh, the sort of the Oni and the evil spirits. So it's like literally influenced architecture. Um, Some people have theorized that this is a hangover from ancient China, where people uh, would have avoided having windows and doors facing the Northeast, basically uh, to avoid the bite of the frigid Northeasterly wind kind of sweeping in um, and making people sick and sad.
1: And if all this seems a little bit silly, not the, the wind position of a door, for example, but the rest of it, um, I would like to remind people that churches are still built nowadays with a devil's door in the north uh, so that people approach the church proper in the main entrance from the south. Uh, yes. Because the north belongs to paganism <laughs> and, uh, and also to the devil. All the heathens were conflated. This is not me talking about the north of England, obviously. I'm not suggesting that they're all heathens or anything. Are you sure? Are you sure? You're not? I'm absolutely sure. I, would, I mean, to be honest, really, they were talking about the Scots, would not they? So, and I'm like, well, that 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 I may as well point at myself at that point. So. <laughs> I knew it. You're a heathen. I don't think that's actually going to surprise anybody <laughs> listening to this at all. Okay.
0: Um. So immediately we're we're kind of seeing. Okay. That. We can definitely find these kind of ogre-like figures in Asia um, and, you know, in uh, sort of, that obviously includes India, China, and um, Japan. Uh, But of course, we can also find ogre-like creatures in other parts of the world. Um, We don't have time to go through every single country, but I do have um, a few little examples. Um, so the first one I want to mention is one I recently found out about, uh, which is the an ogre-like creature found in Papua New Guinea, which is named Origoro, Origoruso, <clears throat> which I've probably pronounced entirely wrong. So I do apologise, because I just look at it and immediately try to pronounce it in the Japanese way. So I'm oh,
1: sorry. sorry, sorry, sorry,
0: sorry. <laughs> Um, And this literally translates to raw food um, and alludes to the fact that these creatures basically would eat people raw. Um, I like that it's like a, no, yeah, they eat people raw. They don't even cook them. Um, (laughs) Yeah, Um, They don't just eat people. They would also eat livestock and things like that. But they did, again, seem to really like eating people. And as always, they especially liked eating children. Now the uh, origoros, origoruso, is a rather beastly creature. Um, it's uh, got kind of like pig-like features, um, these massive deadly claws. And most notably, it has these enormous, really long ears, which I love because essentially it talks about the fact that they wrap themselves up in the ears when they sleep. It, it, like the mythos is, is that they will lay one ear down like as a mattress and then pull the other ear over them as a blanket and that they'll sort of roll up their ears during the day
1: well why not
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's very very cute um, we we have a, a, there are kind of sort of speculations about sort of the whole long-eared thing because um there have been sort of ideas of where it originated from. And um, there are kind of other creatures and things like that, or other people who are um, sort of, who the Western society basically actually depicted as having these massive, very, very long ears, which they would use to kind of wrap themselves up in. Um, and it might very well have actually just come from a, a certain tribe who, yes, would eat raw meat, um, or who would eat their food raw and who maybe stretched their ears or who, or who had sort of slightly larger ears or um, something to do with the the kind of the, the head, uh, the sort of the head gear or whatever that they would wear. Um, so the origins of that are kind of interesting, but we don't have time to go into it. What we do know is in terms of them as supernatural creatures, they are capable of ordinary human speech as well as growling and barking and, um, you know, howling. Um, and that once again, very much like with the Japanese Oni and the um, various other creatures, uh, humans could actually transform into them.
1: Yeah. Which kind of makes you wonder, are we talking about a rival cannibalistic tribe, doesn't it?
0: It does. Yeah. There is the potential there, the possibility. Um, and again, it's this, there's lots of kind of ways in which different ideas could have informed different interpretations. And we also have to sort of kind of be suspicious of who was the one who started writing this information down? Where are we getting it from? You know, how long was it passed on from oral tales? Um, Were those oral tales ever influenced by written texts? And then when it was written down, who was writing those texts? Um, You know, how have all of these things kind of fed into one another? which, you know, is very, very interesting. Perhaps it's it's actually meant to be, you know, a xenophobic uh, depiction of another tribe, which, you know, bes- besmirches them by suggesting that they eat people, um, which is a very common insult. I mean, weirdly enough, if you go to northern Cyprus and southern Cyprus, not that long ago, there was this kind of, this sort of these insults flung um, by the uh by the southern the the greek cypriots who would basically say that the turkish cypriots ate babies and ate children and stuff like that and this was like an actual you know not just um a kind of an insult but seems to have been at least by potentially a few people genuinely thrown as an actual sort of accusation not that long ago so um anytime you kind of hear of a, of a sort of a tribe or a group of people or a monster who could have been based on a group of people um, being accused of, of cannibalism, you do have to sort of turn around and say, okay, but hang on a second here. Um, is there actually something else that has informed this idea? Is there actually any evidence that they ate people at all? Um, we don't know.
1: Um, Although, if we're talking Papua New Guinea, there is a tribe there that does practice cannibalism as part of their funeral rites.
0: Yeah, this is true. Which is,
1: you know, uh, and um, I think in times of great hunger they actually did practice cannibalism, which is how we know about the the brain disease kiru, which is caused by prions. Um, I obviously don't want to go off, but you know, sometimes when people accuse other people of cannibalism it's literally because they are practicing cannibalism
0: yeah no absolutely i know i completely agree um, <laughs> yeah sometimes it's called cannibalism because it's cannibalism yes. um <laughs>
1: other people find that gross and weird
0: yeah the thing that really interests me though is that the defining feature within the language is the raw meat yeah um, and again, even if, you know, this is among people, uh, you know, groups of people who are familiar with cannibalism, it's it's a kind of almost this idea that by virtue of them eating raw meat, it's not even cooked, that they're, they're kind of losing that level of civilization, uh, you know, of people even cooking food. They are they are sort of like animals in that they just eat it raw. They eat it whole as it is
1: they're aggressing to a more primitive state that there, there's yeah. a there's a sort of anthropological um i suppose quite tongue-in-cheek story about how we may as as a species have come to actually start cooking meat because obviously cooking it makes it easier to digest like yeah. oh, more of us can take on more of it our brains developed more etc and then we started thinking about better ways to get more meat um, mm. Meat, I'm sorry for any vegetarians or vegans listening to this, but meat is the reason we became the top of the food chain. Um, yeah. But this this idea was that, obviously, uh, during the Ice Age, when we had short, hot summers, you'd have these terrible thunderstorms. And sometimes they would cause terrible grass fires and forest fires and things. Mm-hmm. Um, and quite often, groups of hunter-gatherers would wait until the worst of the fire had passed and then move closer to see what animals had been caught in the fires. Quite often they'd get there and find animals that were edible, but, but you know a bit singed. And this yeah. is when they were kind of like, actually, this tastes a lot better burnt like this. And then they started burning their meat on po- on purpose.
0: <laughs> That's really interesting. I did always wonder kind of why that
1: is, but that yeah. that makes a lot of sense. Who's hit upon you know meat plus fire equals delicious barbecue? You know. Came up with. <laughs> Yeah, oh. delicious barbecue
0: and i don't i don't seem to get us sick
1: <laughs> yeah so uh, it, it could well be you know something like that and it probably was something like that that but the fact that the cooking and not even cuisine but just basic cooking became yeah. a marker of yes we are more civilized than the people those, none of those weird guys over there they still eat it raw they won't even show it the fire kind of thing
0: yeah um and again we also have this idea of uh, you know the if you're eating something raw you're kind of a, ascribed certain features and this is done all the time in sort of fantasy and, and things like that where look if you're eating kind of raw meat then you need those very particular sort of canines and stuff like that Where you need you know
1: the sharp molars with yeah, the, the huge f- cusps
0: yeah exactly um sorry for some reason now i was thinking about pigs um and their scary scary teeth um <laughs>
1: Sorry about that. That's okay.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's entirely your fault, by the way. Yeah, Yeah. Um, we'll explain about that um, in another episode. Um, Okay, so we then can jump over to the Americas, um, and uh, we have obviously the the Wendigo um, of the First Nations, and I believe of the sort of the Great Lakes. Um, We've talked about Wendigo's in the past. Um, I don't want to kind of touch too much on them because there has been this this kind of this whole argument about the way they've been depicted. Um, But at the very least, from some of the sort of the tales that we do know, um, they have similar features, uh, not least in the fact that they are obviously a very evil presence and that they have those cannibalistic tendencies. But um, and again, depending on uh, uh, this is the things I'm not sure whether the their people being sort of becoming or turning into Wendigo's was a kind of a later edition or was something which was originally part of the um, of the folklore.
1: It's quite difficult to pin down because it varies between various different tribes and also you know we lost a lot because you know a lot of the tribes were routed or you know decimated or spread out or completely wiped out in some cases and then on on top of that it was an oral tradition and when you start losing the people you lose the oral tradition ergo it's very you know that that's why we've all got to be a bit careful with those those particular stories because we we actually don't know we don't have a, a body of yeah. the information like we do with things that
0: have been written down yeah and as with you know a lot of you know the native american we think also that a lot of it was lost because there were many native american children from various tribes who were kind of stolen from their families and so they lost access to that information um and the people who held it
1: yeah would, they lost their would, stories
0: yeah but, you know they lost their stories um so yeah and of course um different tribes slightly different versions um but you know uh, what we can say is that there are other ogre-like qualities um like the inclusion of animal horns or antlers uh which have been added later and are you know hollywood additions um and it's worth noting those things not in terms of saying well look how this is what it was originally but um in in kind of demonstrating how sort of the unconscious western ideas of ogres and their properties kind of prevails because i don't think anyone who was sort of forming the uh, was sort of adding to the mythos all the ideas of the wendigo was thinking oh i'm going to make them like ogres um and yet they did end up just by their nature in the way that they were being understood with ogre-like qualities so they were kind of western people um started to kind of interpreted them as ogres um even on un- even on an unconscious level
1: yeah
0: okay so um whilst we're in america it's also worth mentioning a another another native american um uh creature um from the zuni people uh they have this demonic entity who is known as Ata um, atasaya i again i apologize i will have said that wrong i couldn't find a pronunciation for that, um, and again, this is a creature who has a lot of ogre-like qualities. Um, within the stories um, that I've sort of read where he's included, he is a giant, and he is given kind of various animal-like qualities. Um, so, on, the first thing is that he has this very kind of coarse rather spiky hair all over his chest um which um is either made up of or is reminiscent of uh like porcupine quills <laughs> so um no he, snuggles
1: with that as no a day,
0: snuggles then. no uh, he also has uh scales um usually on his arms uh i think sometimes on his legs and he has tusks um sort of again these massive tusks that stick out and talons um and a bison-like mane of hair um which frames uh, a face a very memorable face with bulging unblinking eyes um and sort of sort of a very red kind of wrinkled face so he's he's got a definite look (laughs) um as with the others he's a cannibal um and he will actually eat other demons, but he does seem to particularly crave human flesh. Um he's also, and this is interesting, um, a pathological liar in that he seems <laughs> to be quite a, he, he seems to be quite a trickster <laughs> I love, in that
1: way. I, okay, I love that. I was like, Oh, he's this terrible monster type thing he eats his own kind he creeps you and he's a pathological liar you
0: can't trust a word he says <laughs> you can't trust a word he says <laughs> weirdly enough he will lie to you constantly um no he, he is this kind of this sort of trickster character um he will pretend to be other people for example in some of the tales you see him um sort of pretending to be like uh i think there's a one one of the stories is it's a couple of sisters and he pretends to be there grandfather and they they catch on pretty quick because <laughs> they're like look our grandfather's ugly but it's not that ugly um but <laughs> yeah, the bits and bobs. um so yeah he so he is a bit of a kind of a trickster character um in that way okay um uh, do you want to take this one
1: sure i mean you, you've really gone around the world here. this is this is great yeah okay. <laughs> the arabic gilan are shape-shifting demons who drink blood and feed on human flesh they come in various shapes and sizes, depending on where they're found. The Persian ghoul has horns and donkey legs and can be small enough to ride hares. Um, in the Sahara Desert, ghouls are cyclopes with ostrich legs. Okay, that's a weird image, but let's go with that. <laughs> I, just want you to, I just
0: want you to imagine that you are hot, scared walking through the desert and you look up and this like demonic be, ostrich coming at this, you yeah, it's, honest, it's just running at you it's pretty scary because they're yeah. big birds yeah um, but just imagine something with like a human sort of torso one eye and then
1: ostrich legs it's so, like yeah um stop that for game of soldiers right yeah. okay um, ghouls will often grab travellers to eat, drink or occasionally sedu- oh right so you can either eat me, drink nor fuck me great yeah uh, but also frequently haunt graveyards and eat corpses as all the best monsters do yes. some ghoul are also known in uh known also know enchantments sorry so the enchanters uh, like the female ghoula who can transform herself into a beautiful woman and can also play a magical flute that compels men to dance themselves to death they've really covered everything there
0: they really have um it is kind of speculated that the ghoul um, may be where we get our word ghouls from. In, in Certainly terms with of, the corpse eating. Yeah, the, 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 the sort of they hang around in graveyards, uh, dig up corset, corpses and eat them.
1: Not, I mean, not to be confused with the people in dark clothing and eyeliner who hang around in graveyards and don't tend to dig up corpses. Yeah. So, yeah Those it, are goths.
0: <laughs> yeah, it, it is. It's... <laughs> Obviously, you also have the idea of, of ghouls being kind of people who are just sort of fascinated with death um, or, you know, who, who sort of really seem to enjoy kind of the very dark and macabre stuff. They almost kind of seem to feed on it. Yeah, um, You know, that is an insult which is thrown. Um, And I mention it because it's really interesting that we have these kind of these figures who are so interconnected with one another in terms of what they represent, the roles that they they kind of they hold, and then how from them we've got we've gone on to sort of create new sort of beings or new creatures who are even more defined. So yeah. we wouldn't say, for, for example, we could say, well, a ghoul and an ogre are a completely different thing in sort of English mythos. Uh, but if we then look at the, the ghouls, the Arabic ghouls, you kind of see this sort of blurring where they're actually sort of the same.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, it, I mean, it's something you find with a lot of different monsters, isn't it? There's usually like a, it's a Venn diagram with a lot of crossover.
0: hmm Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so, okay, uh, our early ogre, uh, early ogre conclusions. <laughs> I, I wrote it to, specifically because I thought, "Oh, that's nice alliteration," and then I tripped over it. Early Is ogres. It... <laughs> <laughs> it's entirely my so fault, you, and you, I you take wrote, responsibility. You the most
1: awkward <laughs> and we're going to do that. I'll make mean, Jules say that one. Yeah, I am. Um,
0: <laughs> I, 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 I'm sorry. It was, like, five o'clock in the morning. So, (laughs) Okay, so from mythological and folkloric records from across the world, then we, as I've said, do start to see a prominent figure appearing, bearing all the qualities of what we would one day label as an ogre, um, long before the word is even penned. Uh, Now, just to remind everybody, these common themes are as such. The first is connection to the wilderness and to nature. Um, And by association then the ideas of kind of savagery, the savagery of nature.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, The next is very animalistic features um, and frequently within those animalistic features they are bovine. Um, So you know associated with cows um you know uh what what's defined as bovine in terms of you, you've obviously it's got a um,
1: square blocky body yeah. and features like i mean if you look at cow's muzzle, it is quite long and oblong and
0: yeah well, absolutely
1: weird, yeah the, the weird thing is they're quite bovine features but they talk about the teeth a lot and cows don't have any teeth at the front of their mouths
0: no they don't um which Kind of concerns me. Um, so yeah, but they they have these kind of bovine features, but then they they tend to have these very kind of sharp teeth, these sort of tusks, where you sort of start to see kind of bovine mixed sort of with wild hogs and and um, and sort of boar and things like that. Um, and in by the same stretch, they are also often very
1: hairy, ugly, and naturally rather smelly. Um, Obviously there's the connection to death and the underworld and apparently digging up corpses.
0: Yeah. This is the thing that interests me. I mean, obviously anything which is going to sort of be a a kind of an evil creature that eats the dead is going to have therefore connections with the dead. But there is this kind of this persistent idea of kind of them being from hell, living in hell, um, you know, or being kind of avatars of hell in some respect um or being undead onto themselves so I, it's kind of it's interesting for me uh
1: because that's just the way i roll <laughs> so i said yeah digging up corpses and The mad went and this interests me <laughs> no not <don't>... literally but... <laughs> oh god <laughs> see
0: the thing is earlier on when I was talking to Jules about the fact that I put this <laughs> together I said and I know what's going to happen I know that you're going to say the only reason that you've fallen down this caveat and become so interested is, is because it involves cannibalism and uh, and there it is Jules poking poking at me as if I'm <laughs> some kind of ghoul cool. some kind of ghoul and I'm not <laughs> the interest is purely academic <laughs> And based on horrified, you know, um
1: fascination. Fascination,
0: maybe? Yeah, yeah, horrified fascination to understand to understand it. Um, going back to our early ogres, um, the other thing that they're kind of associated with is obviously that they tend to be able to use magic, um, and they're, you know, skilled in illusions, um, and trickery essentially so even if not magic they're they're kind of tricksters of some kind
1: yeah and that um combined with the fact that they are able to shapeshift and change at will um is something that pops up in you know later examples it's it's one of the through lines that that is very clear i think is fair to say certainly when you get to fairy tales it is
0: it is it's kind of interesting though because i think like even later on they they sort of lose that ability yeah um, but uh, it is does seem to be a defining aspect of the sort of their early kind of um, sort of origins and of course the most obvious uh, through line um, is their taste for human flesh
1: <laughs> yeah I mean the way that there's so many variants here and they're all like yeah humans are the bomb kind of thing <laughs> we, yeah <laughs> well, what do we want tonight well I want the family bucket size human leg thing yeah, um, it's kind of like it would suggest that humans are actually tasty, and we're not. And not that I've tried this myself, obviously, but um, <laughs> they're not. We're not. We're um, we tend certainly not. Now we're not. We're, a lot of us are eating a traditional Western diet, which is not mm-hmm. great. Um, but no, because we're so high up the food chain, are um, you know we'd be kind of quite bitter. We'd, be, we'd yeah. be less tasty than a pig, put it that way. Yeah, based based on chemistry, but I won't go off on it. Yeah. <laughs> I'll try not to. I I think I, I might give people the wrong idea when I start weighing up the merits of human flesh versus pig flesh, so <laughs> I know that it's like you
0: call me a ghoul, but I'm not the one who's actually starts talking about what humans
1: taste. Like. It's like well, then so something ghoulish and I'm like, Yes, and let's look at this from a scientific perspective. <laughs> now, as somebody who was once involved in medicine <laughs> there's the chemical elements yeah, of so I'm I'm dreadful once you set me off, it's best just to not let me do it. <laughs>
0: Okay um so with this in mind um what, the kind of we kind of have to ask the question of of is it possible that they do share an origin is there sort of some sort of creature which kind of was sort of featured within the very early uh, early tribes of man that has kind of then sort of went on and sort of became other things as as people disseminated, disseminated? Not disintegrated either, but as people um, sort of started to go off into other places, Um, you know, or is there something kind of fundamental in sort of the human psyche uh, that means that in every culture, these kinds of creatures will be imagined? Or, is it possible that they are based on something real? And when I say real, I don't necessarily mean that we literally had actual sort of magical beings, but that instead there was something, an actual source for these creatures.
1: Yeah, see, okay, here's a theory, and this is just a crackpot thing that's come to me literally this second, so Mm -hmm. I have no evidence. Uh, but we were talking about our early ancestors um, learning to burn meat on purpose so it tasted better and was easily digestible. Mm. Um, But if you think back to sort of the ice age, there were several different species of human all living at the same time. So you had cro Magnons, Neanderthals, Homo erectus, and I believe there were one or two others um, Mm. that that may well sort of been Gigantopithecus in some areas, um, all living at the same time. And they were all living within roughly the same niche um, which means that they were trying to—they were basically competing for the same resources. Yeah. Um, and we know for a fact that Cro-Magnons and Neanderthals interbred. We know that cro and Homo erectus interbred because if you—okay, um, I appreciate this is not a popular piece of um, <laughs> human anthropological fact for for sort of Asia, but in general, if you want to find evidence of DNA in our in our DNA record. Um, for Homo erectus and Magnons interbreeding generally you find amongst the Asian populations whereas if you're over here sort of in the UK and the west and what have you most of us have got some Neanderthal DNA so yeah. it's this whole idea of um you know you, you had a lot of enemies lots of things were out there trying to eat you nature was trying to kill you quite on the regular Um, And then on top of that, you've got these rival species, which who are actually as intelligent as you, but don't think quite the same way as you that you're competing against. And, you know, Mm -hmm. sometimes you're interbreeding with. Um, It wouldn't be difficult to go from to just have a massive cultural clash for one thing. And we know that the Neanderthals did have some sort of culture Um, and and just be kind of like, well, they're those. They look different. They're more bestial. They're less refined than us. They don't really have art, etc. and this one time we saw them practicing cannibalism which again may quite be true so I wonder if this is kind of like an inherited thing that got passed down sort of just through memories I mean it's like the entire sort of fight or flight system we've got in our bodies Um, now you can send your amygdala the the part of your brain that Mm -hmm. triggers the fight or flight response into kind of like a sort of threat recognition pattern just by coming home and seeing that You've got all these chores to do i mean it's not a threat to you it's not going to attack you survival wise but it will send your stress up a little bit
0: yeah absolutely
1: um, and it does tap into that fight or flight thing um and if you don't know how to manage it all those things accumulate and you can find yourself in a state of being anxious almost all the time because you're constantly in fight or flight yeah so it, i don't think it's a huge stretch to go yeah there's different species of humans around and some of these stories may have originated from there don't know where we got the word from frankly i'm more implanting yeah. with tolkien but but yeah yeah that, that's my
0: crackpot theory <laughs> no i'm i would tend to agree with you and again even if uh you know there is a lot more to it and other kind of factors sort of put into play um i do think that you're probably right there were originally also these ideas of kind of rival tribes rival sort of species as it were Um, that sort of looked like us, but were different to us, Um, I say us just in general, Um, and which might have, you know, might have been equated with having more bestial kind of features, which might have practiced cannibalism, um, you know, which might have kind of, we talk about the transformation you know perhaps it was that okay well actually if they put on certain clothes or if they actually if they sing or they speak or things like that they sound just like us but they're not um we also of course have to recognize um and this is a phenomenon which is kind of marked uh, across the world um which is that these sort of a lot of a lot of creatures but potentially things like skinwalkers potentially um you know like some of the werewolves and stuff like that um in I- Irish mythology uh, that we've talked about in the past um they were pro- they might have just been warriors who were putting on sort of animal skins and were then going out hunting and were kind of relentless and you had this kind of the idea of man and animal sort of meeting together um and the idea of actually humans and animals kind of combining is one which we see a lot of in in early kind of uh, religions mythology and imagery um it's kind of like one of the earliest fundamentals um you obviously see it in the egyptian gods um with you know their animal heads and stuff like that but um you know in very early paintings very early depictions um and some people have kind of speculated well this might also have been you know to do with drugs um mushrooms things like that uh creating strange ideas which have been uh you know which seem to occur over and over again um not just sort of with one person but seem to actually kind of happen over and over again and we, we start to get into Joseph Campbell and all that, so I'm just going to put him to the side. <laughs> Go away, Mr. Campbell. Um, but, you know, these kind of shared ideas, uh, where did they come from? Um, and could it be these ancestral memories? Could it be informed and sort of reinstated by uh, warriors wearing animal skins? Um, and also, could it actually, again, be about sort of anthropomorphizing disasters anthropomorphizing weather um and uh, other kind of aspects of the natural world in order to kind of make them more responsible as the is the wrong word but you know it's much easier to kind of imagine some sort of figure who is responsible for the thunder and lightning than to get angry at the natural natural phenomenon of thunder and
1: lightning yeah the, i mean that that's a very human thing to do is, mm. is to actually create this illusion of control because yeah. otherwise the world is an unknown quantity and that's terrifying yeah so if we um, make someone responsible no matter how awful they are then at least there is something to blame <laughs>
0: Yeah, and it and it also allows us, yeah, allows us to explain why things are happening.
1: Yep, absolutely.
0: So yeah, so these were the early ogres um, before the word is even penned, and in our second half we'll start to look at the history of the ogre after the word is penned. Um, but we are going to finish there for now. Like I said, it is a two-parter, and you can see why. Um, Before we go it is time for our Dissecting Dragons recommendation however and this week I have got one for you guys. So a new anime was recently released on Netflix it's called Romance Killer and I'd sort of heard a little bit about it and thought okay well I'll have a look at it and it starts out as what is essentially pure comedy and then actually kind of started to deal with some serious themes in a way that I thought was actually well done um, these themes include um, kind of uh, sexual harassment and assault nothing um, I should say that there there's nothing explicit within it so you don't see kind of um, anything happening past a, a sort of certain extent, you know, no one is getting stripped or, or and it's not gratuitous in any way. It's actually done um, in what I felt was actually a, a sort of um, a way that actually represents the violence and the and and the emotional impact of these things um, in a way that isn't massively sort of sexualized or, or kind of fetishized. So that was a big tick from me. Uh now the series basically has quite an interesting premise where the main character is a young woman who has three great loves in her life. These loves are gaming, chocolate, and her cat. And she's obsessed with these things and basically they rule her life. And um a wizard I'm not going to go into why or how basically um, a wizard appears and turns her life into a dating simulation game um, where suddenly she finds herself bumping into like all these very handsome boys um, in a way that is typical of the kind of the characters that you would find in a dating sim so the first is kind of the the aloof sort of cool popular character um from school uh, the second is the childhood friend who always had a crush on her the third is the big rich boy etc um and she ends up bumping into all these characters and basically she's she's sort of told that unless she starts a romance with them um she will never get uh The three things that she loves back um which include again her cat her cat gets taken away from her nothing bad happens to the cat i should just say it just gets sort of uh removed with her parents who suddenly go oh well we've got to we've suddenly we're going to go and work in america now um so you're going to be living on your own again in a very typical simulation style and they take the cat um and she can't eat chocolate and she can't um and all of her games have been taken away from her so she can't play games and she decides instead of going right well i'll go along with it she decides no she's not going to give in um she refuses to play this game she's going to defeat it by basically completely thwarting all attempts by this wizard to trigger a romance so instead of start forming romantic connections with all these boys she instead forms these really wonderful friendships um and the the kind of the story goes from there and from that point of being pure comedy very silly um and quite sort of flashy and loud you you get these quieter more intense more emotionally mature moments that really surprised and delighted me so it's romance killer um There's one season of it. It's on Netflix, um, and I do recommend
1: it. Okay, cool.
0: And on that note, guys, we're going to say thanks very much for listening, and we will catch you guys next week for more about ogres. Yeah, thanks
1: and goodbye. Bye. You've been listening to Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast. You can follow our podcast at podbean.com, or from itunes for more information visit our facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash dissecting readers or check out our author websites at jaironside.com and madelinevaughan.com please note no dragons were harmed during the making of this podcast